Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 91 called Ariel. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Ariel Taylor, who lives in Canada and who I met through Instagram, our lovely infertility community. She has been a part of one of our fertility rally events about surrogacy. She is currently documenting her fourth surrogacy journey, and she is a huge advocate for assisted reproduction awareness and surrogacy education. She's also super cool and fun to talk to. So I'm going to leave it at that. I don't want to give too much away. Without further ado, this is Ariel's infertility story. Hi, how are you? Thank you for doing this. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so good to talk to you again. So we had you on one of our surrogacy groups at Fertility Rally, which was amazing. But I haven't heard like your whole story from start to finish. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for all of the, we'll talk about this more later too, but you do a lot of advocacy and education in terms of surrogacy. So I definitely want to talk about that as well. And you're into like blasting stigmas like we are at Fertility Rally and with my podcast. So thank you for doing that. Of course. <laughs> All right. So let's start at the beginning with you. Tell me what you were like growing up and did you always, were you always maternal? Did you always want to have kids? Uh, well, you know what? I've always, um, I've, I've always worked with kids and uh, I guess my childhood kind of my family and my parents were actually missionaries when I was growing up. Right. So I was born out in Alberta in Canada. I live in Ontario now. So for people not familiar with Canadian geography, that's about across the province of Canada. So I was mm -hmm. kind of more on the West Coast and now I'm out in Ontario near Toronto. And my family did a lot of missionary work with children doing rallies and, and kind of different events for children working through summer camps, working with disadvantaged communities. Yeah. And a lot of that was around children. Right. So I, I, yeah. I saw that on your Instagram recently. Yeah. You posted some pictures of building like houses and I think you were at an orphanage, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of volunteer work as well, kind of into my teens and early adulthood as well. That's so cool. <laughs> But I think um, kind of I've always liked working with kids. I've always done volunteering into my teens and things like that. I uh, When I was in high school, I had, I think, the most volunteer hours. I had over 3,000 volunteer hours in oh high school, God. and most of it was child-related. So I've always kind of had that heart for helping people and always helping my community and kind of being involved in things like that. I was a, an overachiever, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So yeah, so I kind of always did want to have kids. I always wanted to be a mom and everything like that. And um, I got married very young. Uh, my first marriage, I was actually married at, I think, 21. Mm -hmm. Baby. <laughs> um, I know. I know looking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? I was a baby. But I was married really early. I had my first daughter, or my daughter when I was 23. Yeah. So I was very young having her, but you know, she was planned. Uh -huh. uh, it took us about a year to get pregnant with her. Actually, when we were trying, it took us about a year of trying and we're like, what is happening? Like we're not getting pregnant. And I, you know, it, we actually kind of started that conversation of, are we going to need any type of fertility assistance here. So mm -hmm. I, we ended up actually doing uh, an appointment at our fertility clinic kind of 
here in town and I had um, an, H- an HSG test, which is basically where they put dye into your fallopian tubes and they're looking for spillage out by the ovaries to see. And I actually had a blockage in my, in my one fallopian tube. So that was cleared. And then I was mm-hmm. able to get pregnant. So it was just kind of that simple little step. Right. So us. how did you know at that young of an age to even go to like a a reproductive endocrinologist or a specialist, to, you know, like, I feel like I didn't know anything about my body till I was like in my thirties. Like, yeah. Like, well, you know what? I like to describe myself as somebody who is a go-getter and yeah. somebody who, you know, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to seek that answer out and I'm going to figure out. So, you know, when I, I mean, we were very involved in church and everything like that. So I think we were one of the last of our group of friends to get pregnant. Mm. Um, we were kind of in a, in our friend group, there was, you know, multiple people getting married at 21 okay, <laughs> and having babies. And we're yeah. like, why isn't this happening? So I was like, you know what, we're going to figure out why this isn't happening and we're okay. going to figure it out now. <laughs> yeah. So you got it cleared. You had your, your daughter. Yes. Yeah. And, and how old is she now? She is almost six. Okay. Yes. So, you know, I, uh, I always wanted to be a mom. I've worked with kids my whole life in my adult life. I went to school. My first degree, my first bachelor's degree is in uh, childhood and social institutions. And I did a big focus on childhood developmental studies, uh, and things like that. And then I also did, um, a lot of studies in grief and death and dying and traumatic loss. Mm. So that was my first degree. So my whole life has kind of revolved around children and childhood stuff. And, um, you know what? I was very surprised when I had my daughter and it, it was so much different than I thought it would be actually. How so? You know what? I think having a baby is hard. And a few, a few days ago, I did a question and answer session on my Instagram story. And someone was like, was it really hard to be a young mom? And I thought about that. I was like, huh, well, you know what? I think being a mom at any age is hard. And mm-hmm. even though I was 23, you know, she was, we were stable, we were married, we were ready to have a baby. You know, she wasn't a surprise by any means, but having a baby is hard, mm-hmm. even when you really, really want that baby. And I think, you know, I think a lot about the couples that I carry for and, you know, nobody is immune to things like postpartum depression or anxiety or baby blues and things just because you really, really, really want that baby, Mm -hmm. which is actually kind of what led me into my second degree and my passion for helping postpartum moms and infertility support. But I'm sure we will get to that later. Yeah. No, I would love to talk about that actually right now. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that's one, one level of guilt that people, you know, that we in the infertility community have is like, you want this baby so badly. Thankfully, I didn't have any postpartum, but I have so many friends who did. And then you're like, wait, I like did everything and tried for this baby for many, many years. How can I feel shitty and depressed? So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, and for me, I, uh, I, and for, for many people and kind of, I, I'm, I graduate in April and I'm going to get my, I will have my bachelor's of social work and I'm looking into getting my master's degree after that. So I'll have my master's. Oh my God. You make work. me feel like such a slacker. I'm like, all right, calm down, Ariel, <laughs> calm down with the degrees here. <laughs> Six years of university at this point, And I'm, uh, I'm ready to take a break. I'll tell you that that's for so sure. Amazing. <laughs> but I really became passionate about helping people through postpartum and through infertility support and kind of that before, during and after process of pregnancy. And that includes people that are getting pregnant via a surrogate or a donor or, you know, you know, all kinds of other things of assisted reproduction. And I think it was really because there's just such a lack of support for that thing. And I know for myself, a lot of it came down to my perceived support system. So there's a therapy technique basically called interpersonal therapy, and it is 
basically revolving around your perceived support system. And this is one of the therapy techniques that is used a lot for postpartum depression because it involves kind of how are you perceiving your support? And we know that it's so important for new moms to have a support system or feel supported. And it's that perceived support system that's kind of the key there because you could have a lot of people there, but are you feeling supported? Mm. Are you feeling supported in your mental health, your physical health, your emotional well-being? And as a counselor, that's something I would be working with people with is what is your perceived support? You could have a spouse, you could have your mom or your sister, but do you feel supported Mm -hmm. and really, really held up by these people? And a lot of times people who do suffer with postpartum depression or anxiety, or even just not even that far, just kind of that kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing kind of thing. It can be really helpful to identify support systems. And it's working with those people to advocate for themselves and identify those needs and identify those gaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, as part of my student placement right now, I'm working on an entire postpartum package, basically, that will help therapists kind of be able to work with people. And I I always make sure because of my background that I include things about assisted reproduction, infertility, because it's not just, oh, like you got pregnant, you carried this baby and now you have postpartum. It's, well, that's not the case for everybody. And I Mm -hmm. want to make sure that in my practice, I'm being inclusive and I'm making sure that I'm covering all of those bases because for, for infertility patients, especially, and people that have used surrogates or donors, a lot of times they feel left out of those conversations and left out of those. And that just increases their perceived lack of support. And kind of to round all that out, that's kind of really like when I had my daughter and I felt unsupported, even though I did physically have those people around me, I really would have benefited from specific counseling. And I didn't have that and I didn't know where to get it. And as somebody who is really good at seeking out those things, I had a hard time finding those resources. Mm -hmm. So me being someone like I am, I said, you know what, if I can't find those resources, I'm going to find a way to be those resources. That's so awesome. And that is kind of a lot of what led me into my, my degree Mm -hmm. that I'm working on, that I'm almost done (laughs) five more months that I'm almost done with now because I just, I think there's a really big lack of support for infertility patients and for counseling specific to those patients. Like trauma informed counseling is really important. And there's so many places that offer counseling and offer resources for pregnant moms and during pregnancy, but an infertility patient is not going to want to go somewhere with a bunch of pregnant women. Totally. And I love that you use the word trauma. You know, we've, we've talked about that before on my show and you know, at Fertility Rally Live, we had a whole breakout session about it because infertility is trauma. And I think the more that people realize that, the more, the better resources we can get, the more empathy, you know, people can get at large from people that haven't gone through it. So I just, I think that's an important term and I don't think it's over dramatizing it at all. Do you? No, a hundred percent. No. In fact, I think it's undervalued a lot that, you know, infertility is a medical condition Mm -hmm. and it's something that it's one of the only medical conditions where people say, Oh, just relax. It will get better. Right. 
just have you tried putting your legs up after you have sex? And it's like, can you imagine it's going to help my low ovarian reserve, but thank you. Right. Could you imagine if, you know, somebody says that with cancer or something like just or diabetes, don't worry, just relax. Your pancreas will start working. Like like, we don't do that to any other medical condition. And there are resources for all these other conditions, but for some reason, infertility is just seen as a personal issue that somebody goes through and it's not, and it needs to be treated so much differently than it is. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) So, okay, let's go back to your story. So you've got your beautiful daughter and then, and then what happened in your personal life? And when did you decide that you wanted to go down the surrogacy route? Well, so when my daughter was about six months old, I kind of, I knew very little about surrogacy, if I'm being perfectly honest. And I did go into surrogacy quickly and very green. And Mm -hmm. I think if I could give advice to uh, that young Ariel, I, and if I gave advice to anybody else looking into surrogacy, I would tell them to wait, mm. um, from my right. experience, uh, having a baby and then going into surrogacy is a lot of work. So basically when Scarlett, that's my daughter, when she was six months old, I looked into surrogacy. I kind of knew very little. I, I basically, my knowledge of surrogacy came from a grade 11 parenting course where the teacher said, some people adopt and some people use surrogates. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which by the way, is a whole nother topic why we're not talking about infertility as part of sex education in high schools, but that Thank could be you. a whole podcast in itself. Honestly. No, I know. I agree. <laughs> I have a daughter who's 11 now and, you know, we're starting to talk about that kind of stuff, not infertility yet, but you know, should getting your period and pregnancy and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, this comes up a lot too. There's such a need for that for this new generation of girls and boys too. I 100% you know? agree. So I think there are some people that are working to change it. And I know you're one of the people that's mm-hmm. really passionate about it. So I think that's really important. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, I Googled, I looked up some agencies. I ended up doing an intake with an agency and I kind of was was picked and matched right away with a family. Okay. <laughs> So it all went very, very quickly. So this basically all happened in September of 2015 or the end of the summer of 2015 when Scarlett was about six months old. Uh-huh. I was matched with my first family uh, to be a surrogate. And to be honest, I, I, people always ask, why did you want to be a surrogate? And initially, kind of at that point, my thought process was, you know, I really enjoyed being pregnant, um, yeah. but I was done having kids of my own. Scarlett is my one and only. I uh-huh. talk all the time that she is like the energizer bunny on stage. Yes, you've said that a um, bunch of times. <laughs> And I'm like, you know what? I think, uh, I think one is good. And I now have two wonderful stepdaughters. Yes. Um, so, you know, our family feels very, very complete. And how old are they, Ariel? They are almost 12 and seven. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we have a busy house and a busy life. And, you know, I'm more than happy with the kids that we have. And I really feel like our family is complete. So I was done having kids. By the way, it actually is a very, very strong recommendation for people looking into surrogacy that they are done with their own family Mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. There's additional risk with IVF. You know, you could have secondary infertility. You could lose your uterus. You could lose your ability to have children after having a surrogate baby. And so they strongly recommend that if you are not done having your own children, do that first before you become a surrogate. Yes. As an aside. (laughs) Sure. You know, so that was all kind of when she was about six months old, I was matched with my first family. They were from the GTA area. So near Toronto, which is about two ish hours from me. So, you know, we, we had really good communication. It was really important for me to match with a family that uh, wanted to keep contact and wanted to have a relationship kind of during and after. And they were just wonderful. I just adored them. And uh, they had a daughter that they were able to carry, but uh, w- she was not able to carry another one, which is why they were using a surrogate. Okay. Uh, 
And so, you know, my daughter and their daughter played together a few times or we'd meet up and stuff. And we transferred, we had our uh, embryo transfer in January of 2016. Mm -hmm. So about six months after this was right before Scarlett turned one, you know, so she's, she's one and I'm already pregnant with a baby. This was this couple's only embryo. They were not making any more. This was kind of the the chance. So, you know, thankfully that embryo transfer was successful. Um, However, I ended up miscarrying at, well, the baby stopped growing at 13 weeks. I didn't find out my body didn't realize that the baby had died. And for a couple of weeks later, mm, I went into so the hospital sorry. at just before 16 weeks with some symptoms. And that's when they kind of told me that the baby had died. I'm so sorry, Ariel. Oh. Yeah, it was tough, honestly. Yeah. And with my background in grief and everything like that, I I've talked pretty openly about grief and loss as a surrogate because I think it's something that's very, very misunderstood. And I had a really difficult time in the hospital. So because I was far enough along, I wasn't early enough where they could just give me the medication to miscarry on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to either be induced and give birth to the baby or I had to have a DNC. Okay. So I chose to have a DNC. My daughter was a plan C-section. I had never been in labor before anything like that. And I did not want my experience of labor and delivery to be with a stillborn baby. And so that was, it was tough. And I remember I had to because I was a surrogate, you know, I had to call the intended parents at two o'clock in the morning from the emergency room and tell them what had happened so that I could get their permission to get a DNC. Oh God. So how did that phone call go? It was awful. Honestly, I think this is one of the worst phone calls I have ever had to make in my life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm bawling and I'm, I'm crying and like, you know, it was just, it's those feelings of like, what in the world did I do wrong? And, you know, now I see that it's like, it is insane that the couples that I've carried for or the couples that many surrogates carry for have gone through these traumatic losses over and over and over again. And I went through it once and was devastated. And mm-hmm. I feel like my empathy for these families and parents and people that have gone through these miscarriages just got so much stronger after I experienced it myself. And I feel like I just got like a taste of it, yeah. you know, cause it wasn't, I wasn't grieving the loss of my family. I wasn't grieving the loss of the child that I wanted because I was a surrogate. However, I was close to this family and I cared about this family and, you know, they, you know, we were past, we were in the clear, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it was terrible. I felt so responsible. I felt like I did something wrong. You know, I had hospital staff be like, why are you so upset? It wasn't even your baby, mm. which is appalling. They said that to you? I did. I had a nurse that said that. And oh I actually God. ended up meeting. I met with the hospital social worker after the fact and was like, look, this is not okay. This is not how we treat surrogates. Yes. And infertility patients and people that experience this type of loss. Right. Um, I really think it would be beneficial for the hospital social workers to be way more trauma informed about surrogacy and assisted reproduction and infertility patients, because I did not have a good experience with that. Mm -hmm. I would love to work in the hospital one day, kind of in that department. Yes. Because I think there's, there's a long way to go with that, but you know, it was a really trauma informed. That's a great term. (laughs) And you know what, you're going to do it because if you set your mind to it, you will be doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it was a tough loss. I had to work 
through a lot. I did a lot of counseling. Obviously, I am a massive advocate for counseling, obviously. And I think everybody should do it. And I think there's such a negative stigma around counseling. But it was so important for me to be able to process that traumatic loss because it wasn't just the loss of a baby. It wasn't just a miscarriage. It was a loss of a journey. It was a loss of a relationship with this family that was not going to try again. They were out of embryos. This was their last chance. They did not get, it was a little girl. Mm -hmm. Um, They did not get that little girl that was supposed to be joining their family. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really, really tough. I went through a lot of counseling and to get past that. Did they say like what had happened? I know there's sometimes it's just, it wasn't yeah. a healthy embryo or. And that was or... basically the conclusion. This embryo was tested. It was a tested genetically normal embryo, but you know, it, it was, it was nothing that my body did. It was nothing that I did. Um, yeah, you know, course, it was nothing like that, but you know, it could be that the embryo just wasn't strong enough to yeah. survive after I stopped meds. You know, I stopped meds at 12 and a half weeks and she stopped growing at 13 and one. So, you know, was the baby strong enough to support itself? Was the placenta strong enough? You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of more of an inconclusive, but it was nothing that I specifically Of course not. Of course not. But I think it's probably, it's a human thing to have that guilt, right? Like you said, like, what did I do wrong? And I'm so sorry I couldn't do this for you. And, you know, there's a lot of emotions there. So I'm so glad you got the counseling that you needed Mm -hmm. and that you're advocating for that now for others. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And there is such a negative stigma about going to counseling. And I do think it's getting a lot better because I just think it's so important for everybody to have that safe space to process emotions. And it's being able to be like, throwing it all on the table, be like, this is hard to deal with. And I need help for someone to unpack this with me. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my counseling was. It was talking about it. It was kind of some exposure therapy about kind of, this is what happened. And this is, this is my story and then getting it all out there. And then someone being able to rearrange that and repack and reframe that loss into something that wasn't as traumatic. Yes. I love reframing. We've been talking about that so much in our (laughs) fertility rally support groups. Reframing is such a great, way to go through infertility, reframing, you know, like your focus on one thing and just, Mm -hmm. yeah, we could go on and on, but I love that. Oh yeah. And I think it's really important too, that they, like, there doesn't have to be a reason that someone experienced loss. I think a lot of times when people say like, oh, well, you know, there, you know, God has a plan or, well, there's a reason. No, that's bogus. That's infuriating to to me. I hate that. And I can't stand that. And I think this is another reason why a trained counselor is important. I think it's great that people have their friends or their mom or their partner to talk to. But a lot of times those people inadvertently say the wrong things that don't help. But counselors know that that's not helpful. And you know what? This sucks. And this situation was really, really shitty. And I am so sorry that happened to you. And there is not a reason for it. It is not there's, there's not some profound lesson you need to learn from this. It was something bad that happened to you and that's okay. And we're going right. to move forward from it, you know? Yeah, totally. So that was kind of my first surrogacy journey. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> a year into it, I had a, not even a one and a half year old going through this. I had a very traumatic DNC. I ended yeah. up being in the hospital for about five days. I had oh, two wow. blood transfusions oh, um, after hemorrhaging. It was, it was rough. It was not a good experience, yes, um, to say the least. However, I didn't want that to be the end of my story if it didn't have to be. 
Right. So kind of going forward from there, uh, I went through months of medical testing. We had to wait for pathology to come back from the baby. I had to see not only the OB, like kind of that was, that was following me and my midwife and all that kind of stuff. But I also had to be cleared by the RE and everything. Again, I had to do a lot of testing. I had to do additional, um, I feel like I had to do a mock cycle. I can't, I can't quite remember, but kind of just other testing to make sure I had, um, uterine biopsies done. I had kind of like additional, uh, sauna histograms, like all kinds of testing to, make sure that it was okay for me to get pregnant again. Okay. Was there ever a moment where you were like, it's not worth all of this? Like, I don't want to do it. Or were you pretty committed? There was definitely a, a, a portion of me that was like, oh my gosh, what if this happens again? But I was like, yeah, but you know what? What if it doesn't? Mm-hmm. And I love that. that came to a lot of the reframe. And I, I think, you know what? There are a lot of intended parents. And the, pe- the reason I want to do this is to help people that have gone through this. And you know what, if, if, if this was something that was a fluke, you know, it obviously wasn't my body that had done anything wrong. And as long as it was safe, of course, right. I had to be, I was actually cleared by two different REs as well as my own OB and my family doctor who is a OB. Like it was, you know, it was quite the process, but after determining it was safe, that's when I kind of looked to rematch with my second family. And they also live kind of in the GTA area near Toronto. So that uh, they're pretty close within two hours. So I was matched with them and uh, we did two transfers. The first one was like a very, very early chemical. My beta kind of got up to 23 and then went down from there. So it was a very, very early chemical. Mm. And then we transferred again in January of 2017. So this is now a a full year after that initial first transfer okay. with the miscarriage. So that's kind of the time frame. And so when people talk about like, how long does it take to have a surrogate? How long, if, if you want to be a surrogate, how long does it take to get pregnant? I was like, well, it could take a month or it could take two years. Like, yeah, completely. <laughs> really, there's no, um, there's no guideline necessarily. Right. But we transferred in January of 2017 and that was successful. Um, okay. I had their son in the end of the summer of, of 2017. It was a little boy. Oh and, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> and that was, uh, I actually was able to have a successful VBAC with that pregnancy. Oh, wow. Um, so that was very special because the parents got to be there. They were right there for the delivery. They got to cut the cord. They got to watch him be born. Yeah. Um, it was a, this the same sex couple, right? No, this was, oh, a, it this, wasn't, sorry. This is a heterosexual couple. Okay. I did pray for a same sex couple after. Okay. 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 We'll talk. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was just, and this is a woman, like I can, I connected with her right away. Like I would think the first time we talked, it was like a three hour long conversation and I just, I adore her. And the baby I'm carrying right now is actually a sibling for that baby that I carried. Oh my gosh. Um, so we are, you know, rematched and, and you know, I, I adore them. I really okay. do. I think they're just a wonderful couple in this. Can you tell me about that birth and like, well, first of all, backing up a little bit <laughs> when you found out that you were pregnant and then the pregnancy was going well, was that just a huge sense of relief? It was, I'll be honest though. And I still get so nervous right around that 16 week mark, even this current pregnancy, you know, and I'm like, I hate the 16 week hurdle. And, you know, like I I booked an extra midwife appointment and be like, can you just make sure it's still alive? Totally. I think that's awful. That's so common. You know, I think any pregnancy after, Mm -hmm. after loss is, 
you never, you know, can fully relax. Oh, never. Honestly, I don't think I relax until the baby's like physically born. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cause <laughs> but, you're, um, you're, we'll get to this point, but you said you're 19 weeks right now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so all right. So past that 16 week, like past it. <laughs> yeah. That like deep breath kind of thing. Yes. So tell me about the V back and having that, that son for this couple. Oh, it was not only was it kind of like a, a little bit of a healing experience for me to be able to give birth as a surrogate, have a VBAC with my daughter. I actually planned a home birth. Uh, we had a midwife, we were planning a home birth and then she flipped breech mm. and we could not get her to turn. And we were actually planning a breech delivery. And then she switched that. She was like, she had one foot down and one foot up and it was like really unsafe to deliver her okay. um, vaginally. So yeah, my daughter was breech as well. And my son. Oh yeah. So it was, uh, it was a very, it was not fun to have a C-section because I was planning such a different birth. So being able to have a V-back and being able to do that was kind of a healing experience for me. And it was really important too, because I'm like, the parents got to be there. They got to watch their son be born. And I think that's such like an amazing thing for people using a surrogate to be as involved as possible in everything, because it, it is hard to, you know, have someone else carrying your baby. I remember, um, there's so many learning experiences I kind of went through as a surrogate. And I, I think when I first joined and I first wanted to be a surrogate, I had all these like expectations that, Oh, I'm so great. I'm going to be a surrogate. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I'd look back at myself now and I'm like, what in the world was I even thinking? <laughs> Calm down, Ariel. Like you're like just chill. Uh-huh. Um, because my mindset has just changed so much, right? And like I remember when my intended mom, when we did our embryo transfer, and I was excited because I'm like, embryo transfer, cool. But then I realized that like this is hard for her. And then I remember her saying, like, you know, this is the moment when I realized that I can't carry my own baby and I have to give up the fact that I can't have my own baby. Mm-hmm. And holy crap, it just like it was gut wrenching. Cause I was like, Oh, and how guilty did I feel for like being so like excited and happy and being like, this is hard for somebody else. And I Completely. think there's that level of respect that I have now for intended parents and a level of empathy and kind of just holding space for them, mm-hmm. which I think is really important that I have now as an experienced surrogate. Right. So the birth was just it was so great. They were there. They got to watch him be born. They got to cut the cord. We have the whole thing on video. So cool. Um, she got to do skin to skin right away. And I remember just watching her hold him and we have it on video. So like, I still like, I just love it. Like, you know, they put the baby on her chest and she kind of like snuggled him up and like, just her face just like broke. And it was just like, it was like the years of infertility and the eight IVF transfers that they, they did and the mm-hmm. multiple surgeries she had and multiple egg retrievals. And all of this has led up to this moment where she like, she is physically holding her baby. He's here. She has that baby that she's been trying to bring Earthside side for a very long time. And, oh, it was just, I felt so accomplished and I felt yes. so happy and I felt vindicated maybe yeah. a little bit for, you know, I, I felt like, yes. Th- and, and when I, when people ask me now, why I do surrogacy? It's that's why that yes. is why I do this. It's, it's as much as I do like helping people. It's when you really deeply see somebody have a baby after infertility, there's nothing that can like compare to that moment. Right. Absolutely. I, I by no means think that I'm like some superhero surrogate, but I I'm happy that I could be a part of their story, you know, right. a part of something that 
brought their baby here. And I mean, I do think yeah. it is heroic though. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's, there's some, it's the most selfless act and, you know, I, I, I hope people hearing this, you might inspire somebody to do it, you know, cause it's <laughs> just, there's so many that are needed in the world. And I think that there is, you know, the, the making it more normal and, you know, blasting the stigmas, like we said, is, is only going to help. So, yeah, absolutely. That's like the biggest thing, right? There's a lot of misconceptions about surrogacy and why people do it and yes. what the women are like that do it. And Let, okay, let's document that. So people know that, Hey, I'm just normal. I'm a yeah. regular mom. Have a good job. I'm educated. You know, like this is just something I like to do. <laughs> right. Let's talk about that. Tell me about the misperceptions and, mm. you know, the myths, blasting myths. Yeah. So probably the biggest one is that people think surrogates get paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars to be mm-hmm. surrogates. Mm-hmm. That is not the case. Um, so I'm in Canada. So our laws are a little bit different than the states. In the states, uh, there's some diff- like there's some variation between states. You know, some states are surrogate friendly, some are not. Some allow compensation, some do not. In Canada, surrogates cannot be paid. We cannot be compensated. We are reimbursed for pregnancy expenses. So obviously there is some money involved. Like, you know, I I know that American (laughs) surrogates and people in that community don't like it when surrogates are like, we do this because we're just amazing people and we don't get paid. It's like, okay, well, of course you're not getting paid, but there's a lot of things that are covered for us during the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, we can be reimbursed for things like our extra groceries, our kilometers to and from the clinic. So my clinic was, you know, two hours one way. Mm -hmm. So that could be a whole day off work. So that's lost wages, that's childcare, that's kilometers, that's meals while we're traveling. Once pregnant, it's things like maternity clothes, things like, you know, if you need a breast pump or pregnancy pillows or kind of additional things for the pregnancy, um, you know, there's like a number of things that we are allowed to be reimbursed for. Typically mm-hmm. for a first time surrogate, that amount is capped at about 20,000 to 25,000 for the entire pregnancy. Okay. So that's very different than in the States where kind of, I think average compensation is anywhere between 30 to 50, depending on where you live. Okay. Um, so that is even less than kind of the lower amount of compensation that is allowed in the States. Okay. So yep. Got it. So, Yeah. So, and you have to submit receipts for every single one of those things. Uh, You have to sign a declaration of your expenses that yes, these are legitimate pregnancy expenses. You have to keep track of every single dollar. And so you're, um, are you working with an agency? Right now, I'm actually not working with an agency. Okay. I, I have in the past, and I recommend them for anyone who is a first-time surrogate or first-time intended parent. Basically, the reason that I'm not working with one now is because it's a sibling journey. We yeah. already knew each other. You know, sure. we, we kind of used the same lawyers. We did everything the same. So there wasn't a need to kind of pay the agency to be the middleman there because gotcha. we had already kind of done this once before. Totally um, makes sense. I do so, recommend agencies, though, for people that are new. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So you're submitting your, all your expenses. Uh, what are some of the other misconceptions? I think, um, (laughs) there are some very like weird ones and this is like, it just goes to show that people know absolutely nothing about surrogacy in the general community. I will get messages on my Instagram from people that say how appalling it is that my partner lets me have sex with someone else's husband to have a baby. Oh, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, and I was like, that's, that's not how surrogacy works. Right. Do you respond to those people or is it just like they're not I, even worth your time because they're so <laughs> ignorant? I like to think that I am somebody that is very kind and very like open. Yes, to you are. You are. 
and gracious. And I think a lot of these comments definitely come from people just having zero idea about this. So I try to educate. There are always people that think it's wrong, that think it's coercion, that think that I'm being um, taken advantage of, or that, you know, this is like baby selling. And, you know, there are always going to be those people. But that's just, it's just not the case. And I think for people like me to be much more open about a journey and be like, no, I'm just, a, I'm a regular mom. I have a good job. I've gone to school. I like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I have a family. I have a nice house. I have, you know, it's like all these things that people think right. surrogates are. And I'm like, that's just not how it works. Yes. You know? Can I tell you too? So <laughs> I went to, I think I said this when we had our event, but for people that didn't hear that already. So I I lobbied first, you know, to make surrogacy legal in New York and Albany beginning of this year. I can't remember when it was, maybe it was last year. I think it was earlier this year. Is it still 2020? Yeah, I know. It feels like it's (laughs) like, what year is it? Um, (laughs) Anyway, when we were going into these, you know, legislators offices, these, and it was mostly like old white men. Oh yes. And they were like, but the question is whose baby is it? And we were like, no, that's not the question. <laughs> that's never been the question. Like yeah. they had these antiquated notions uh-huh. of what surrogacy is. So do, is are we still running into that? It's like, come on, people. Can we honestly? Our legislation, and I know that some areas, especially New York, have just kind of recently kind of redone that. But in Canada, our legislation is so behind. And I've actually done some advocacy work kind of with the government and Mm -hmm. some lobbying kind of efforts to decriminalize paid surrogacy in Canada. I like people ask me all the time, well, if you could be paid, would you? I was like, well, yeah, like... (laughs) Right. I don't think it makes me any less of a surrogate or any less of a good person because it's easier for me to just like, you know, let's say 30,000, right? Let, let's say, you know, it doesn't need to be astronomical, but that would, that way I don't have to submit receipts for every single pregnancy expense. And again, these old white men in legislation aren't going to be telling me what is and isn't a pregnancy expense. Right. And like, to me, I'm just like, I can make that decision on my own. So instead of me having to submit every single dollar for every single receipt and potentially being audited and somebody looking at that being like, okay, but was this special pillow actually a pregnancy expense? And I was like, well, considering you've never been pregnant and you don't have a uterus, I don't think you should probably get a say in that. Exactly. But that's just my... (laughs) very feminist point of view. No, I agree. But right now in Canada, surrogacy laws basically are, you're you're not even going to believe this, but basically if I was ever caught being paid as a surrogate and payment right now is ambiguous. If my intended parents bought flowers or bought me a birthday gift, which is very common for intended parents to do, and no one's ever actually been charged with this, but technically that could be considered payment. And the fines and the ramifications for being caught being paid are under the same laws as human trafficking. Whoa. Yep. Tell me about it. So so messed up. Our legislation is so far behind. And I think it is so important to decriminalize paid surrogacy. I think surrogacy, you know, making it reimbursement only and making it like, it, it almost makes it seem sneaky. And I don't think that's okay. I think yeah. Okay. Surrogacy is hard work. Okay. This puts a lot of, of work on my body, a lot of strain on my family. Sometimes it's not just about reimbursing the surrogate for the specific prenatal vitamins she had to get and Completely. the pregnancy pillow. And she needed maternity clothes and she needed gravel because she can't keep any food down. Like it's not about just that. It's that, Hey, my family took two years out of our life 
We right. couldn't go on vacation for two years because you can't go to a Zika zone. Sure. You know, we, you know, we, we put our life on hold or, or if I was on bed rest, I know surrogates that have been on hospital bed rest from 28 weeks until birth. Yeah. That's a on the family. You're putting your think, health at risk and your family at risk. Exactly. Too. And I don't think it's unreasonable to be paid or compensated for that time. Because I think as well as my expenses are worthwhile, I think my time and my effort and my commitment to this process is also worth something. Mm-hmm. And those are just my feelings. I'm not sure. I, I obviously don't speak for every single Canadian surrogate or anything like that. No, but I, I do think there is a place to decriminalize paid surrogacy in Canada. I agree with you. And thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. So that's my feelings on, uh, on our <laughs> political <Yes>. climate. <laughs> totally. And if anybody's going to get it done, it's you, Ariel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love um, that you're leading yeah. the charge. <laughs> Be the face of surrogacy. Completely. You know? <laughs> yes. Okay. So you have this gorgeous boy. Mm-hmm. And then, and then what? So I loved the process. I had such a good experience in the postpartum period. I felt honestly wonderful. I felt so accomplished. I felt like my body was capable. I felt like I really felt good about the whole thing and solidified the whole reason I wanted to do this. And I wanted to do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I matched uh, pretty quickly with, with a, a t- with two dads or two potential dads, uh, from San Diego. And, uh, you know, I just like fell in love with them. Um, mm-hmm. Mark and Kevin are just like two of like the greatest guys. Like they are just incredible and they are in fact dads now. So I yeah. think they are just like, I think they are wonderful. And, that uh, experience with a gay couple was actually very, very different than with a heterosexual couple because there wasn't the intertwined grief and loss associated with not being able to carry their own baby because so that wasn't an option in the first place. Completely. This, yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And that was actually something that was very, very different because there wasn't the same kind of emotional ties where it would be for, you know, someone who identifies as a woman not being able to, to carry. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, like a very important distinction. And that journey was, honestly, it was a lot of fun. And like, I, I went down to visit them. So we actually matched like very quickly after I gave birth. Again, this is something that I would recommend people do wait a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was kind of like, oh, we have this other couple. Do you want to match? And I was like, okay. Did you, you have know? any, were you with your partner at the time? Like, did you have any Yes. buck back from him yeah. like being like no. whoa 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 like you're gonna do this again he's honestly like so supportive he is yeah. like honestly Brandon is my biggest cheerleader I think you know he he always t- I really want to do like an interview with him one time because I just think it would be so great for people to see like yes. what a supportive partner is like in this process he is just my biggest cheerleader for everything he's somebody Aww, who what a good like, guy I know he's like you know what you want to go to school we're going to make that happen because your career is important and I support you in everything you do and he's you know he's really seen how I've been able to grow and kind of turn kind of just being a surrogate into something that is really, you know, this has become a career for me. This is not, not surrogacy. Surrogacy has not become a career, but (laughs) my my passion for infertility and for counseling and for all the things that surrogacy represents has really become a career goal for me and being able to service this community and advocacy work. And my Instagram page, which started a year ago of me just kind of documenting a pregnancy for my friends and family turned into kind of this community of almost 10,000 people that are like, right. 
really great. And I'm yes. like, you know what? If I have this platform, I am going to use it. <laughs> Good. So everybody needs to follow you. It's at carried with love, right? Yeah, there... carried.with.love. Carried.with.love. Okay. Yeah. And I've just kind of, I, I really try to, you know, not only document kind of the pregnancy, but also kind of, I do question and answers. Yes. I talk about the importance of having lawyers for surrogacy. I, you know, and, and then I also share a little bit about my family and my mm-hmm. life and here's who I am. And, you know, I think it's just kind of important for people to see this is really what surrogacy is about and really how it works. So, mm-hmm. um, Brandon's just been so supportive of kind of everything that I've wanted to do. And he's, he's just like in, in, well, we'll talk about Ari, who is Mark and Kevin's little boy that I had um, yes. at that birth. He was just like, oh my gosh, he could be a male doula. I swear. Yes. Like, you wrote that on your IG. I was like, honestly, I amazing. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> okay. So you have Ari and then, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So with Mark and Kevin, I, I flew down to meet them in December of 2017. So right around Christmas time, we went to Disneyland at Christmas uh-huh. time, which was probably the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> I've never been to Disney before, like never. And uh, we went at Christmas and I'm not kidding. It was the most magical thing I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. Maybe because my name's Ariel. I just always have this like passion for like Disney related things, but <laughs> <laughs> it was just great. And we bonded like right away. You know, I stayed with them for, I don't know, like almost a week or five days or whatever. And I got to meet their friends and their family. And like, it was just so different, you know? And then a few months later, I flew down, Brandon and I actually flew down for my medical screening. Or did Brandon come from my medical? I can't remember. Went down for medical screening because uh, I had to do everything at their fertility clinic in San Diego. That all went well. And then Brandon and I flew down for transfer. We actually stayed with them for about a week over the transfer kind of time. And it was just so great. We all got along so well. It was just mm-hmm. like staying with old friends, you know? Well, and- I think it goes, it speaks to the bond that you know, intended parents and surrogates have and how important that is and how it's such a wonderful relationship too. So it's, again, that makes me question when anybody's like, well, whose baby is it? And what if she wants to keep the baby? And it's like, no, get with the times. That's not (laughs) how it happens. Like, yeah, like I don't want your baby, but thank you for that vote of confidence. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And that, that actually is another one. People like, Oh, don't you want to keep the baby? It's like, no, do you want to keep someone else's baby? Like, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I interviewed another surrogate in my first season and she was saying, you know, like somebody said that to her, like, was it hard to give them the baby? And she was like, it was never my baby in the first place. Yeah, Like, so it was not, there was no question. I was just giving the baby to who the baby belonged to. Exactly. That made me like, gave me the chills. And I was like, yeah, it's so (laughs) sweet. So yeah. like our first transfer was successful. Um, you know, I, I had a really good pregnancy. I did have a lot of prodromal labor, which basically is like, feels like real labor, but it doesn't actually do anything. So that Okay. Was- I've never heard that word before. Yeah. It's kind of like Braxton Hicks, but they're like, it feels like labor, but they don't huh. dilate you. I had no idea what it was until I was like, these are not Braxton Hicks. Like, I feel like I'm in labor. And then they'd be like, no, like you are having regular contractions, but they're like, they're not dilating you. So, uh, okay. It was a, a couple trips to the hospital near the end there. So, <laughs> um, okay. but you know, it was, is never like, you know, a, a necessarily concern. It's just, I had an irritable uterus that pregnancy. Okay. But Ari was, was born. We were attempting another VBAC, but at seven centimeters, his heart really started, his heart rate really started to go down. So we ended up doing a C-section, but you know, Mark and Kevin got to see him right away. They got to hold him right away. They got to do skin to skin. Like it was just, they still kind of got all of those things you know, that that they would get to do in a normal delivery, except kind of physically watch him (laughs) 
mm-hmm. about. But like, it was really great. And like, he was just such a sweet little baby. And actually something interesting with them is because they were from the States, they couldn't actually leave Canada until they had the birth certificate. So they actually stayed with my family for a few weeks after Ari was born. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Which was kind of a unique experience is that that's not something kind of every surrogate does. Normally you do not go home with a baby, but in my case, we all went home together. <laughs> wow. And it was really special. Ari was born two days before Christmas. So I went home Christmas Eve at nighttime. I begged them to let me go home early, you know, and I had really good support. Brandon was just incredible. Like, and and if you don't have a partner that will change your diapers after a C-section, like you need a new one. Cause he was just, he was just the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh you know, lifting great. each of my legs individually yeah. to get up the stairs. Like it was, you know, it was, That's- Talk about bonding. (laughs) It really was. I feel like our relationship got a lot deeper. Yeah, totally. (laughs) That's awesome. What happened after that? (laughs) So basically kind of uh, a little bit after that, I I did want to do it again, but I knew that the first baby that I gave birth to, I knew that they were kind of toying with the idea of a sibling. So kind of, I want to say about almost like maybe eight months later, we kind of started talking about it. We did two transfers actually last fall. And so fall of 2019, and we had one failed and one chemical, and then um, they had to kind of create more embryos. Now, this is the, this is the family that I, I gave birth to their son about three and a half years ago now. So they had to make more embryos, which was kind of taking a little bit longer than they wanted to. And so over Christmas and kind of into the new year of 2020, they were starting the process of, of creating their embryos and going through that whole process. And then March hit. Yeah. <laughs> And all the fertility clinics closed and everybody's cycles got canceled. And it was catastrophic to the infertility community who now was shut out of their way to grow their families. And uh, yeah, we were right in the middle of that. So Mm -hmm. that was really, really tough. And, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's so hard, right? Because while all these people are posting their funny pregnancy announcements about not social distancing and accidentally getting pregnant, you know, you have this whole community that's like, well, that's great. I can't get pregnant unless I have a fertility clinic and they're closed because someone is deeming this unnecessary or not essential. Yeah. All the quarantine babies Mm -hmm. and all that. I know that was painful for a lot of people. I know. And it's just oh, it's just heartbreaking. Cause I'm like, you know, you're happy for those people like, great. But then you're like, well, great for, you know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, you know, so I, I am glad that the fertility clinics did open up eventually because I think people realize like, this is essential. Like if a doctor's office can be essential, fertility options and assisted reproduction is essential. Completely. So thankfully kind of before the summer, they were able to kind of get in for retrieval and get in for kind of all of that kind of stuff to get their embryos made. So thankfully that happened. New batch of embryos. We transferred in July, June, I think July. And it was successful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I am now almost halfway through this pregnancy. Yes. Which is very hard to believe. <laughs> yes. So tell me about when you found out that it had worked. So I was, you know, nervous because we had two failed transfers and with all the restrictions from the clinic, it's like, oh my God, please work because it's, it's exhausting. Anyone who's gone through IVF, like it's tiring and you get tired of going to the clinic and it like loses the novelty very, very quickly, you know, and even though I'm a surrogate and even though I choose to do this, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm immune from being like, I don't want to do another transfer. I don't yes, want to go off you're human. fertility meds. I don't, I don't want to have to start all over and totally. Like it sucks. Like it does. Like, let's be real, Mm -hmm. you know? So 
I was really, really happy. I got uh, really early positives on home tests. We transferred one embryo. Um, I am, uh, I will only ever transfer one embryo. I think mm-hmm. there is a lot of research to say why that's the best option. Yeah. Um, I am an advocate for set only. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, we transferred one embryo. We had really, really strong numbers, great doubling time. And, and so I was, I was really, really happy that everything was looking so good. All of our ultrasounds were good. There was like zero concerns. I, I'm really happy. With, uh, with their first son, I actually had an SCH. Um, what is that? A, a subchronic hematoma. So okay. uh, I had bleeding at seven, at five and seven weeks. Um, mm-hmm. with that pregnancy. And it was so scary because you suddenly just start bleeding and yeah. you're like, Oh my God. And so the, our first trimester with that pregnancy was a little bit different. Cause there was that, Oh my God, am I going to miscarry? Am I going to not? And it ended up being fine. It ended up just being that hematoma that had resolved on its own, um, which is very common in IVF pregnancies. Right. Um, right. but yes. with this one, you know, we had no early bleeding. We've had no, like no, risk factors. Like it's, it's probably one of the smoothest pregnancies I've ever had. It's pregnancy number five for me, and it'll be my fourth delivery. So, you know what, so far so good. And I I think I'm really just trying to focus on, you know, enjoying the process. This may be my last pregnancy. I'm not sure, you know, do another one. I may not. So I'm really just trying to, you know, focus on enjoying the process and, and, enjoying this pregnancy and, and kind of manifesting that things are going to be okay. And right. this is going well. And, and, you know, I, I have a midwife this time and we are planning to try for a VBAP. We're going to be doing a trial of labor in the hospital. Uh-huh. Um, so it'll be safe and we'll be kind of on standby in case anything goes wrong, but we will be doing like a trial of labor. So it would be really great to be able to, to do have another VBAP. So the parents yes. kind of be there. Obviously with COVID, we're not kind of sure exactly yeah. how things are going to happen. I have to take it as, it comes. as of now, they're only allowing one support person into the room. So that will be Brandon just cause I kind of need him for, he's my male doula. Right. <laughs> and right. he'll be the one to get me through birth, you know, and then kind of the plan is that mom will be in the waiting room. And, and as soon as that baby is, is born, like that's now a patient and he gets a support person. Yes. So we are Aww. hoping we are just we're hoping the hospital makes an exception and allows mom in for at least the pushing, like, yeah. you know, just so that she can be there. If not, like the second he is out, mom will right. be allowed in. So, you know, so, you know, it's a boy. Yes, we do know it's a boy. <laughs> Sweet little yeah. guy. I know. So oh I'm, you know, I'm just really thankful for everything I've been able to do. And I did an interview actually with, um, with CBC radio, um, just the other day. And she was asking, she's like, well, pregnancy is so hard on your body. Like, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? And I was like, honestly, what pregnancy does to my body is the least of my concern. Mm. And I think as a society, women are told that, you know, your bodies get ruined after you have a baby. And I in no way see that my body has been ruined. I've been really lucky that, you know, I haven't, I haven't had any like major body changes. I haven't gained or lost massive amounts of weight or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, do I have stretch marks? Yes. Do I have like some loose skin? Sure. But I look at that at being like, that is something I have because I am able to carry a baby and how many people in the world and how many women in the world would just love to be able to have those physical markers of being able to carry their own baby. And, you know, honestly, what my body feels like or what my body looks like doing surrogacy is like really the least of my concern, honestly, in the grand scheme of what it all means for somebody, you know? 
Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Ariel. And Ariel, thank you for all that you are doing for other parents and for this community in general and for education. I love your message. And my God, you are so such a a doer, you know, one of those people that just does gets shit done. So I'm happy to know you. Thanks again for sharing your story. I also wanted to tell you guys, the listeners, that if you have a moment to go rate and review this podcast, it really helps with awareness and word of mouth and getting these stories to more people. So thanks again for listening. And I will talk to you next time.